The reading of Holy Scripture tonight is from Revelation 21 and chapter 22. The text of the sermon will be the first five verses of chapter 22. We're going to read the first two verses of chapter 21 and then skip down to verse 14. Revelation chapter 21, beginning then at verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And now that New Jerusalem is described, we'll pick it up at verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, an hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Now skip down with me to chapter 22, where we will read the first five verses, and that will be our text. I won't reread that section again. And he that is the angel showed me, that is John, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Beloved of God, Revelation chapter 21 described the church as a city. Verse 10 of that chapter says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of God from heaven. Keep in mind throughout the sermon that 
this city is not a literal city somewhere in the new heavens and new earth, but this city is the church. It's a symbol of the church as she lives in the new heavens and new earth. Verse 9 of chapter 21 had the angel saying to John, Come hither, John, and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And then in verse 10, he shows John this city coming down from God out of heaven. The church is described as a city. She's ordered, she's organized, she has a government, she's a kingdom with a king. But in chapter 21, the description of the church as that city has been mostly limited to what you can see looking at it from the outside as if you were walking towards it. There's a description of the walls and of the foundations and of the gates of pearl. And it's here now in chapter 22 where the angel takes John and us inside the city to see what is the very life of the people of God in the new heavens and new earth in symbolic form. But now as he takes us inside this city in chapter 22, there's symbols here, images here that we don't really expect. What do you expect to see when you go downtown into the middle of a city? You expect to see buildings. You expect to see markets and shops. But that's not here at all. Instead, we see a vast garden. And a garden that reminds us a whole lot of the first garden, the Garden of Eden. There is a river flowing through this garden and there is the tree of life here. This is paradise. The life of the church in the new heavens and new earth is a paradise so that like bookends to the Bible, the scriptures open with a garden paradise and they close with a garden paradise. But don't think from that that the works of God in redemption are simply a big circle. And so God's works are just to take us through all of this and to bring us back to the beginning. Instead, there's advance onward and upward in the redemptive works of Jehovah God. This paradise is greater than this paradise, and this paradise is pointing us as a picture to the ultimate paradise that this is. In other words, we're not merely brought back to the beginning at the end, but we're brought to a more high and glorious reality. We're brought not merely to paradise regained, but we're brought to paradise advanced. And that's the theme of the sermon this evening, paradise advanced. We'll notice first tonight the inner garden. Second, the advanced state of existence here. And third, the help that this is for us today. Paradise advanced, the inner garden, the advanced state, and the help for today. The first thing that we see in this garden in the middle of the city is a river. Verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. There was a river running through that first garden, the Garden of Eden, and now there is a river running through this garden as well. Only this river is 
termed something here that that river was never termed. This river is called the river of the water of life. Running water is always a symbol of life in the scriptures. But here, we have a symbol of a much more glorious, higher life. That was a a physical river actually running through this garden that provided physical life. But this is a symbol of a greater life, the life of heaven itself. This river is described as having pure water, clear as crystal. Water that's unmixed. There's no dirt particles mixed in with this water. There's no pollutants floating through. This is pure, pure water as a symbol of pure life. Unadulterated life. The purest form of life that you could possibly know. Unmixed with any death or with any curse. This is heaven's life. It's a river that is able to give this life because of the source of this river. The source of a water always determines what kind of water it's going to be. If you take a trip to Yellowstone National Park sometime, the water that shoots up into the air or that bubbles up out of the ground, it all smells like rotten eggs because the source of that water is sulfuric rock deep in the earth. But if you go visit the Rocky Mountains and take a hike to the top of one of those peaks and those little mountain streams, that water is so clear and pure and sweet because the source of that water is the snow melt on the top of those peaks. Well, this river is running with water of pure life pure, clear as crystal, unmixed with any death because the source of this water, we read, is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 1, it's proceeding out of this throne. There's a throne of God in the middle of this garden. God himself in Jesus Christ rules over the life of his people here in the new heavens and new earth. It's not two different thrones, but one throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 3, verse 21 To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, Jesus speaking, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Together they rule over the life of God's people. And now here is this water proceeding out of this throne. It's not not merely running beside it. It's not a river that's that's going around it like a moat, but it's actually bubbling up out of this throne and flowing to the people who are here. This life, pure life, is God's life. The life of God in Jesus Christ is flowing to them here. They're tasting and drinking of pure, pure life, the life that he himself has, that he communicates to his people in the highest way that creatures can have it here now in the new heavens and new earth. And the Spirit we are to see, the Spirit is the one who's communicating this life to us. The Father and the Son are on the throne. The Spirit is the water too. John seven thirty-eight and 39 
For Jesus said, He that believeth on me, as the Scriptures hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, so that the Spirit and the life are really in one, <clears throat> one image here, this river of the water of life. It's the Spirit's role to take the deep life of God and to communicate it to God's people in part now, but then fully. He takes this life and communicates it to the people of God here in this new heavens and new earth. Next, we see a tree, the tree of life. Verse 2, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, just as there was the tree of life in that first garden. Now we read, this tree of life comes back in this better garden at the end. What a wonderful thing to read on the last page of sacred scripture. We have been barred from this tree in Adam. Lost our right to the tree of life by our sin. And now here we are living in the time between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22. And yet there comes a time when we have access to this tree once again by God's grace. So there is a river of life and there is the tree of life. And the images are one, aren't they? We read about this tree that it's on either side of the river. So you see its roots on the banks of that river are digging and they're themselves drawing from the river of life so that the fruit on this tree is full of the same water that's in the river. It's one image of life flowing from the throne of God. And in the drinking of this water, in the eating of this fruit, there is rich life, pure life for the people of God there. And all the people of God are eating and drinking of it. All the elect believers from every time and every place The tree produces 12 manner of fruits, we read. 12 is the number of the complete church, the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. All the church, old and new, are eating. There's 12 manner of fruits. There's enough for all of God's people here. We're all eating and all participating in the fullness of this life. Those who are powerful in spirit in this life, receive a fullness. Those who you might say are the weak in the kingdom of God, but still regenerated by Him and God's people in this life. Those with great gifts and those with lesser gifts. Those who are at the center of things in this life and are praised for their work and those who are faithful to God, but their faithfulness isn't always seen or acknowledged. All are eating of this tree and all are drinking of this water and all are being filled to their capacity with the life of God Himself in Christ by the Spirit. Forever and ever. Notice the tree produces these fruits continuously. It produces its fruit every month. This is an astounding tree, this tree of life. Here, we're in the autumn time. The apples are off the trees now and their limbs are going to be bare for a whole other season. But here, this tree 
produces every month. It keeps producing. There's always more, always enough. The images are of lushness, of vitality, of fullness. All of our needs are being met. All of our cares are being cared for. This is eternal life in paradise. The kind of existence that is here in this paradise is more wonderful than it was in that first paradise of Adam and Eve before the fall. To see that, let's take notice now of the great differences between this garden paradise and that one. The first one we've already seen, that this river is running with pure water of life, this heavenly spiritual life, more than this physical life. Second, take notice of the differences between the tree of life that's there and that's there. The text indicates that there's actually at least two trees of life here, if not three. Verse 2. In the midst of the street of it, that's one, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, two and three. Except it's possible that the first part of verse two actually belongs back with verse one. And I think more likely that's the case. So that the phrase, in the midst of the street of it, is actually a continuing description of the river. The river is flowing and it flows in the midst of the street of it, period. New thought. And on either side of the river was there the tree of life. In that case, two. But either two or three. The point is there's more than one. And if you look at Ezekiel 47, which gives a prophecy of this new heavens and new earth, that this is fulfilling The same river is there, and the tree of life is there, but that river is just lined with tree after tree of life on this side and tree after tree of life on that side, so that the point is there's more life here than there has ever been before. Yes, God's people receive the very life of God himself, but not like this. This is the fullness of that life. They have it in a way they've never known it, unmixed with anything else and the utter fullness of his life come and communicated to them. Add to that, that we read not only is it the fruit that is giving us life from these trees of life here, but it's actually the leaves too. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This tree, these two trees are so chock full of the life of God flowing to it from that river that even the leaves are bursting forth with the life of God for those who are here. And those leaves and the eating of them heals the nations. Those nations indicate something higher and better about the state of existence. Here too, the elect from all nations, tribes, and tongues are here. Did you ever think about the fact that if Adam had not sinned, we would all be exactly the same? If Adam had not sinned, there'd be no fall, no tower of Babel and the dispersing of peoples into different tribes and tongues 
and nations. God even uses his judgments ultimately for his glory and for the betterment of the life of his people. Here, all of his own are brought together out of this diversity into one essential unity as that life flowing to them from the throne fills them and binds them so utterly together so that the nations are healed. The breach at the Tower of Babel that divided them is now overcome by this life here. Throughout the history of the world, man has been trying to overcome that breach and to heal the nations some other way. And finally, in the anti-Christian kingdom, man will think he has done it as he builds a kingdom on the foundation of the glory of man that has a life that lives after the principle of sin without consequence. And man will be united for a time and man will think we've done it. We have healed the nations. But man is so utterly turned inward upon himself that this will not last. And the anti-Christian kingdom will fall apart of its own devices without anything else touching it. It's only here, in the kingdom of Christ, with this life that flows from the throne of God, that overcomes the breach and unites the people of God and all of their diversity in one before the throne of God forever, living one life in perfect unity and harmony with each other, each one having their place in that great city. The fact that this is a city garden indicates something too of the higher state of existence here. There's a street running through it. It's in the middle of a city. That garden in the beginning had no street. It was just Adam and Eve there. Here all the nations of the elect are gathered and all existing as a polis, a, a city, in an organized whole with each one having their place, their life having prepared them for their place here, ordered under their king who's sitting upon the throne. You think church polity doesn't matter? Its ultimate climax is here in the ordered life of this glorious city. It matters here as a reflection of that too. And then this, so too the state of existence is better in this final garden than in the first. In that this garden covers the entirety of the new heavens and new earth. That first garden of Eden was just a little garden on a little spot on the earth. But this garden covers the entirety of the new heavens and new earth. Everything is this garden city. There is nothing outside of it. All things are embraced in this highest life. That's advance. But the highest advance, beloved, is seen in the reality stands at the very center, the heart of the heart of the life here, a life of fellowship and communion with God. That was the heart of that first paradise. Covenant with God, fellowship with God. That little garden was like a temple where God came down into that little place and, and they came close to God and they walked with Him in the cool of the evening. But in the fall of man and his rebellion, they were barred from that temple and cast out into the wilderness of thorns and thistles. 
And yet as you march on through the works of God in redemption, God did not leave them merely with wilderness. But in his grace, he gave to them a a taste of paradise that had been lost, that would go with them so that in the tabernacle and in the temple, what you have is really a bit of the Garden of Eden that he's taking with them. Another place where he comes down in the pillar of cloud and they may come close through the priest and through the sacrifice and may be with God and have fellowship with him again. That's why when you read about the building of Solomon's temple, you read this about it in 1 Kings 6 verse 29, and he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers within and without. Why? Because it was to be a garden, that temple. When you walked inside, you saw a garden. God's giving us a bit of the garden that had been lost here. There's a paradise that in his mercy he restores to us, that he keeps with us. And then you keep going in the works of redemption. And here comes the Christ who is himself the paradise of God. He is the temple of the living God. He is God and man come close together. He is fellowship with God in himself, in his own life. Then he dies for sin and he arises and he ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit back upon the church. In the New Testament we read what? We read that you are the temple of the living God as the Spirit comes down and dwells within you, indwells you so that in your relationship with God you have the Garden of Eden, you have paradise life within you. Not only in your individual relationship with God but also in the life of the church together as the New Testament describes the life of the congregation also as the temple of the living God. And then you die. Your soul goes to glory and Jesus says to you what he said to the malefactor on the cross. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And there's a higher, more glorious experience of this life with God and fellowship with God. But then finally, beloved, it all climaxes in what we read here in Revelation 22. And this is the highest. This is paradise, the fullest. Every other bit of paradise has been leading up to this. This is the fullness. This is the temple of God that is with men that covers all the new heavens and new earth, the highest paradise life. This especially makes it paradise advanced. And the experience of that fellowship with God that is at the heart of this greater and highest paradise is nowhere described more marvelously and beautifully than in verse 4. For we read that here we shall see his face. Is there anybody here who wants to see God's face? Can you think of anything more wonderful than this? 
the face reveals what's deep inside through the eyes, through the mouth that speaks what's deep within. We're being told here in this symbol that we'll be so close to God that that we'll know Him like you know a person face to face who, who speaks to you all the deep things that are inside of them and reveals to you through the eyes what's going on inside of them and you shall see His face. That is, your face is very close to His face. This is called the beatific vision. There's been some debate about what exactly it is in the history of the church. With what are we seeing? Are we seeing with uh, the eye of the soul so that we're we're knowing God with with the soul? Are we seeing with, with the eyes, the physical eyes in the resurrection body or some of both? Certainly we're seeing with the eye of the soul. And here, we are knowing God deeper than we've ever known God before. Here, we'll be wrapped up in perfect communion and love and enjoy the immediate presence of His Godhead. There's some seeing with the eyes too, isn't there? The physical eyes. Certainly, we're seeing our God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who took hell for us. Can you imagine seeing Him face to face? But the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in our Savior. And though no man can see God and live, is it possible that with our new resurrection bodies, Even with our physical eyes, we could perceive something of the person of the Son of God. There's mystery here. Whatever the case, it will be, beloved, that we don't become God when we get here. It will be that our vision of God, our, our communion with God will be mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ and it will be that whatever Christ himself has in his humanity, he will communicate to us in the highest possible way he can. He will give us every ounce of what he himself has as is possible to give to us. Here, we're no longer seeing through a glass darkly. Here, we no longer merely touch the hem of his garment. Here, all faith is turned to sight. This is the ultimate end of our existence. This is bliss. This will secure the happiness of God's people forever. This will satisfy the soul. Haven't you figured out yet that there is absolutely nothing in this life that can fill you up utterly and satisfy you? It can't. Because human nature was created in such a way that only this, this intimacy with God is the only thing that can secure the happiness of the people of God. And though all men turn away from it by nature, but the Spirit of God within, the child of God, knows and looks to this, this ultimately will satisfy me. And here, then, then I shall be satisfied. Is this not your desire, child of God?
If it's not in any way, then you are either the weakest of his children or no child of God at all. And must come to see the end and the temporariness and the shallowness of anything in this life and that nothing can satisfy but him. To gaze upon the face of God in Jesus Christ, to speak with the one who is invisible to me now as a man speaks to his friend, no longer through the medium of a a book and a man proclaiming that book, but to hear him say to me, Directly, my child, I have set my love upon you in all eternity and absolutely everything in your life has been leading you to myself and to here with me. And now you will bask in the glories of my graces forever and my love for you and to respond to him directly. And I love you, my father. And to know that nothing that comes out of my voice will be against him and opposed to him, but always unto him. This is the heart of the heart of the people of God. Was not the great promise given to the church in the priestly benediction in number six, this, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Did not the church longingly pray for this with David in Psalm 4? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Now here, though we've had these things in part, here we have them in full, but oh, you see, I'm going to be so scared to be right before him face to face. speaks to me and I speak to him what about all of my sins from this life and all of the shame and all of the ugliness and what I've done even consciously in rebellion against him but you'll know that sin and shame gone perfectly beloved and you will be holy perfectly holy unto him in that day That's why in verse 4, we not only read, and they shall see his face, but also it continues, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Do you remember, children? The high priest had to wear that turban upon his head, and then he also had that gold metal plate that was wrapped around his forehead, and right there on the front, was written what engraved in that plate was holy to Jehovah. God's name was upon the priest's forehead. It was consecrated unto God and we will be that utterly there. We'll be owned by him, marked by him so utterly that every synapse that fires will be unto him for his glory and for his honor. That life that flows to us from the throne will so fill us that there will be nothing left but what is unto him righteous and holy. He lightens us fully with his light there. There's no darkness there, the text says. No darkness of ignorance, no darkness of sin within us. The only light is the light of God and of the Lamb that lighten this place and they will enlighten all of our understanding. You come into a dark room and you flip on the light switch and and by this light you see everything that's in. That's what it's going to be like. By this illumination 
of the communication of his own light to us in such a rich and full way. We're going to see things that we never saw before. We'll we'll know ourselves like we never knew ourselves before. We're going to know each other like we never knew each other before. We'll know our own life and understand our own life like we've never known it before in the history of this world, like we've never understood the history of this world before. And Him, we'll know Him even like we've never known Him before. Have you ever had the experience? Of course you have. Where some new connection is made for you or you make yourself in your study of the Scriptures. Or some new piece of knowledge that's true, knowledge from the Word of God, and it opens up a a whole other room in which you see the, the God of your existence who you thought couldn't get any bigger and more glorious to you. And now in this room, he's, he's even in this room in this whole other side, and he's marvelous. That's going to be happening to us every 10 seconds while we're there, and his glory will shine and shine and shine, and it will captivate us, and all things will be unto him in our praises and in our life. The servants of His, we will serve Him there. And we'll want nothing more than to serve Him with all of our gifts and all of our abilities now reaching their climactic point. Adam in that first garden had responsibilities, didn't he, under God's rule? He was given righteousness, knowledge, and holiness and was to be vice-regent under God to serve God as His prophet, priest, and king. Here we will be that unto God fully and perfectly with that true holiness, holiness to the Lord upon us. We're going to be priests consecrating ourselves in all things unto him. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him with that true knowledge from that light of God and the Lamb that enlightens us there. We're going to be prophets speaking only truth and fullness of truth to each other and to Him in praise. With true righteousness, we're going to be kings under Him here. Verse 5, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's you. You shall reign forever and ever participating in His rule over the new heavens and new earth under Him, never offending Him, consecrating all that exists to His glory. We're pilgrims and strangers now in this world, and oh, don't we feel it. We feel like utter foreigners in His world sometimes, but don't forget, beloved, it's still His. And because it's His, it's ours. And he will bring it into this state and remove all wickedness and all chaff and we will be strangers no more but we'll rule over it with him as princes under our king. He makes it into this garden city, not us, but when he makes it that we share in his marvelous rule forever and ever. And nothing can mar this glorious state of existence for the people of God. Nothing can lessen the joy of it 
For we read in verse 3 that here, there is no curse. The curse is banished from this place. There's only pure, unmixed life. No death, no curse. How can it be? How can it be for us who live after Genesis 3 that there is a place with pure, pure life and no curse or death? It's a tree at the beginning, a tree at the end. But don't forget, tree in the middle, because it too is the tree of life. See that by faith. And pluck the fruit of the Lamb of God slain upon it. And eat by faith. And then this tree is yours and it fruit forevermore. No pain, no sorrow, no tears, nothing of the difficulty and trouble that characterizes this life. There never will be. Sometimes people ask, well, yeah, it's going to start that way. But what if one of us falls into sin again and the whole thing falls apart and starts all over in a fall again? But that's not possible, beloved. Because there's this too that's greater and more advanced about this garden than that. Did you notice what's not in this garden that was in that garden? Here there is no tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here there was a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here there's a tree of life and another tree of life. It is not possible that there be any fall. In the first paradise there was a way to get back out but no way to come back in. In this better paradise, there is a way in, in the fruit of that tree in the middle, and there's no way to get back out. Never will it be ruined. Never will it end. Bliss forever with him and all the people of God. Would you see what God has prepared for you? And you wonder sometimes if he loves you. All things are leading to this. All things are pressing to this. In Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism, When the Catechism brings up the doctrine of hell, the reality of hell, it asks the question, but is he not also merciful? Yes, he's merciful, but he's also just, and his justice demands that sin be punished, and it will be punished, either in you or in that Lamb of God who's hanging upon that tree of life. 
But now when we speak about heaven, can we switch the question around just for a moment? Is he not also love? Is justice? Is he not also love? Yes. This is where his love is taking his people. He can't conceive of anything higher to give them than the fullness of his own life in this bliss of paradise. To be with him face to face. Doesn't this go some way, beloved, to cure you of your love for the sin of this world? The things that looked like a ten-course meal to me, the sin that my old man wants now become so light and, and so tiny and so tawdry and so empty in the light of this glorious, wondrous grace. Doesn't this do something, beloved, to comfort your hearts in the midst of your trials and difficulties? Your God in Jesus Christ has accomplished this. This is sure and steadfast. This is not a wish or or merely a, a hope that maybe it will come true. It's already accomplished. It's already done in the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's happened. It just has to be unfolded. Life in paradise is coming. I can live then through the veil of tears for this short while until he brings me here. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Carry on then, pilgrim, child of God. Resist the age. Serve your God as prophet, priest, and king now in whatever part of your life and portion of existence he gives you. Until the day that he brings you home. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the church. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, add thy blessing to the proclamation of thy word and give us hope that makes not ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen.